knowledgeable believers are aware that departure from the Lord has consequences. The first consequence that comes to mind is divine discipline. When ancient Israel departed from the Lord, they were judged. They also experienced another consequence that is perhaps even more serious. What could be more serious than divine discipline? The answer is in Ezekiel chapter 10. If you will turn with me to that passage, we'll explore this question. And while you're doing that, let me say that there are many connections between this chapter and chapter 1, the vision of God's glory. In chapter 10 is closely linked to chapter 1, giving further information about the throne chariot, the living creatures, here identified as cherubim, and the glory of the Lord. However, chapter 1 was addressed to the exiles, whereas this chapter is addressed to those rebels in Jerusalem. So with that in mind, let's uh, look at Ezekiel chapter 10. The first part of this passage is talking about judgment. It could be called a preparation for judgment. Verse 1 says, And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Now again, we're going to deal with the vision that we saw back in chapter 1, and in this case, he says, over their heads, the cherubim heads, he saw this throne chariot that resembled sapphire in color, and apparently it was very beautiful. Verse 2 says, Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub, Fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went as I watched. Now this is a vision. And Ezekiel sees a man clothed in linen. And he is instructed to take some fire and scatter it over Jerusalem. This signifies God's judgment that was about to be poured out on the city. In verse 3 he says, Now the cherubims were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and cloud filled the inner court. Now, verses 3 to 5 are a parenthesis repeating the movement of the glory of God described back in chapter 9, verse 3. At any rate, Ezekiel explains that in his vision, the cherubim were positioned on the right or south side of the temple building looking east. The south side of the building was the closest to the city. A cloud symbolizing God's presence covered the inner court of the temple where the cherubim stood. Then, verse 4 says, the glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim and paused over the threshold of the temple and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the Lord's glory. 
Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord, perhaps personified, moving from among the cherubim to the doorway of the temple building for a second time. If you will remember, we saw that happen back in chapter 9, verse 3. Has God moved, the cloud representing his glory filled the temple and illuminated the courtyard. Verse 5 says, And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court like the voice of Almighty God when he spoke. The sound of the cherub's wings, which was also mentioned back in chapter 1, filled the whole temple area as far as the outer court. The sound was like the voice of God, the sovereign of the creation, when he spoke. Then, verse 6 says, it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherub, that he went in and stood beside the wheels. Now, if you'll recall, the man clothed in linen, which is what Ezekiel is seeing in his vision, was told to do that back in verse 2. And then I mentioned that verses 3 to 5 are a parenthesis describing uh, part of this vision that he had seen before. So now verse 6 is picking up where verse 2 was. Ezekiel returns to his, after his momentary digression to continue his account of the man in linen. The messenger approached God's throne chariot and stood beside one of the four wheels and beside the cherubim. One of the cherubim then took some of the fire and put it in the hand of the man in linen, thus enacting the divine judgment and purification of Jerusalem. Verse 7 says, And the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim. And he took some of it and put it in the hand of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. Simply, one of the cherub then put some of the coals of fire that it took from between the cherubim and placed them in the man's hand who was clothed in linen. And the man went out from the presence of the cherubim with the coals in his hand. God's judgment was scattered on Jerusalem, which is the point. Verse 8 says, And the cherub appeared to have the form of a man's hand under his wings. Keep in mind, this is a vision. Elijah, I'm sorry, Ezekiel, saw again that the cherubim had what looked like human hands under his wings. Perhaps he mentioned this to clarify how the cherub would pick up coals and place them in the man's hand who was clothed in linen. Now I mentioned at the beginning of this little section that it was about judgment, the fire being poured out on Jerusalem. And I suggested we could call it the preparation for judgment because it's all about putting the fire in the hands of the man who's going to scatter it over Jerusalem. The second portion of this passage is the preparation of departure of the glory of God himself. I want you to pick the story up at the next verse, which in this chapter is uh, verse 9. Uh, 
he says, And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub, and another wheel by each other cherub, and the wheels appeared to have the color of beryl stone. Ezekiel again saw the wheel beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each of the four cherubim. This time, he compares the wheel uh, into stones in their appearance. The exact identity of the stone that Ezekiel saw is impossible to determine for certainty, but that's the description. He says in verse 10, As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Now, this recalls the vision in chapter 1. I told you this is a return to that vision. Uh, and this is a wheel within a wheel. And if you'll remember, it was difficult to describe and imagine in chapter 1. And so it is here. You almost have to have the picture of it. And speaking doesn't quite draw the picture. Uh, any rate, uh, the wheels evidently intersected with the primary wheels and made it possible for these wheels to move in any direction horizontally. That is the bottom line of what's going on. When they went, they went toward any of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went. And their whole body, with their back, their hand, their wings, and the wheels that were in the four head were full of eyes all around. Ah, eyes covered the cherubim and the wheels, no doubt symbolizing the great perception and knowledge of these beings. Their entire bodies were completely full of eyes. Probably their eyes represented divine omniscience, as did the eyes on the wheels. The four creatures John saw in the book of Revelation surrounding God's throne also was covered with eyes. That's in Revelation chapter 4. As for the wheels, verse 13 says, they were called by the hearing wheel. Then Ezekiel heard the wheels referred to as whirling wheels. Uh, whirling meaning rolling, revolving. Thus the wheels were named for their function. They set God's throne chariot in motion by revolving. The naming of the wheels here is seemingly to prepare for the departure, departure which uh, will be described later in this passage. In other words, God's glory, which all this represents, was about to whirl out of the temple on these whirling wheels. Verse 14, each one had four faces. The first face was the face of the cherub. The second was the face of the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle. Now, this is interesting. Uh, the cherub face in verse 14 uh, may be the same as the ox face in chapter 1. One author said, each of the cherubim had four faces. The faces of the cherubim, a man, a lion, and an eagle. Chapter 1, verse 10. 
He says in 110, the faces were of a man, a lion, a bull, and an eagle. Evidently, the cherub appeared more like a bull than anything else. This conclusion harmonizes with ancient Near East art that pictures winged bulls and lions with human and bird heads guarding palaces. Probably the ancients chose these symbols of combination human and animal creatures to represent characteristics of those beings that they respected. Evidently, God represented the cherubim in a similar term to communicate that his angelic servants possessed those same characteristics. End of quote. That author is simply trying to explain the meaning of this. The text just gives us a description. Then let me read what one other, another author said. Ezekiel then describes the faces of the cherubim a second time. And he's referring, of course, the first time was in chapter 1. However, an apparent discrepancy exists between these two descriptions. In one, chapter 1, the cherubim had faces of a man, a lion, an eagle, and an ox. But in chapter 10, they had the faces of a cherub, a man, a lion, and an eagle. Some have suggested that the latter describes uh, the, that the later scribe mistakenly copied cherub in place of the face of an ox. A second view is that the face of the ox was, in fact, the normal understanding of the face of the cherub. At any rate, there is a slight difference between the description in chapter 1 and in chapter 10. Uh, perhaps it's intentional. Maybe it's a scribal error. Verse 15. And the cherub were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river of Charbar. It is now time for God's glory to depart. Then the cherub rose upward. God's throne ascended from the court of Israel into the air. Ezekiel's description of the movement of the cherub in the wind and the wheels uses the same words he employed back in chapter 1. Verse 16, when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels did not turn from beside them. In other words, as they moved, the wheels beside them stayed uh, right with them. Verse 17, and when the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. And when the one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. When they stood still, the wheels also stood still beside them. The spirit of the cherubim extended to the wheels so that whatever one did, the other did. The mobility of these creatures is to do whatever God commanded them to do. And that's what this all represents. Now, so far, we've seen two parts to this passage. Uh, I suggested that we began with uh, a vision that is describing uh, preparation for judgment. Then the second part is the preparation for the departure of the glory of God. Now, we've come to the third and last part of this passage, which is the departure of the Lord. Look at verse 18. Then the glory 
of the Lord departed. Now, highlight that, underscore that, if not in your Bible, in your thinking. Then the glory of the Lord departed. There's a sense in which that summarizes this whole chapter. That's the point. Only in this case, it says the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. That's beginning to depart, starting the departure. Ezekiel saw God moving from the front door of the temple to a position above the cherubim. In the vision in chapter 1, the cherubim supported a, uh, supported a platform on which the throne rested. The Lord was mounting his throne chariot, which the cherubim would carry to ride out of the temple and the city. All of this represents God's glory. God's glory, which had been standing at the entrance of the temple, departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped just above the cherub. Continues in verse 19. And the cherub lifted its wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And when they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of God, the God of Israel, was above them. God was mounting his throne chariot to ride out of his temple and city. The throne chariot began moving toward the east, but as the cherubim approached the edge of the temple precinct, they stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The departure of the glory signals the end of a relationship that had existed for almost four centuries. The divine king has abandoned his residence. Verse 20. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel, and I knew they were cherubim. The cherubim were the same creatures that he had already called living beings in his description back in chapter 1. Why did he call them cherubims in chapter 1? Perhaps the vision of Solomon's temple, which combined the presentation of cherubim, helped him identify the living creatures that he had seen before. Verse 21 says, Each one had four faces and each one four wings like the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. This is saying the faces of the cherub were the same as the faces of the living creatures in the vision of chapter 1. One more verse. He says, And the likeness of the face, faces on the same was the faces that he saw by the river in chapter 1. Their appearances and their person, they each went straight forward. Each cherub moved straight forward in the direction and the front of its body. This description may stress the purposefulness with which the cherubim moved to carry out God's will. Events are not determined by the wheel of fortune, one author has said, which is blind, that is the wheel of fortune, but by the wheel of providence, which are full of the eyes of God. Now, um, I recognize that this chapter is a little challenging. 
because it's describing things that are hard to picture. So let me sum it up and tell you the significance of it. The sum is simply that the consequence of Israel's departure from the Lord was judgment, which I mentioned in the first part of the chapter. And the Lord's departure from Jerusalem. Now let me repeat that. It's super important. The consequences of Israel's departure from the Lord was first judgment and secondly the departure of the Lord. When the ancient Israelites departed from the Lord, God's glory departed from them, which is in a sense a more more devastating than judgment itself because the Lord is not there to help. The Lord does not forsake believers today, but when they depart from the Lord, his blessings depart from them. Now, I said in the introduction, there's something more serious than divine judgment. And I think this passage is describing the departure of the Lord, but it starts with the fact that fire is going to be poured out. That's the judgment. And then it describes the departure of the Lord. Now, if you were going through a time of judgment and you had the presence of the Lord, uh, remember Habakkuk said, in wrath, remember mercy. Uh, Maybe it would be a little more tolerable. But what would be worse is for the glory of God to depart. Or in the case of believers in the New Testament, for the blessing of God to depart. That, I say, is much more serious. This vision teaches us never to lose a sense of the awesome power, wisdom, and majesty of God and to fear the departure of his presence in the case of the Old Testament and his blessing in case of the New Testament. Someone has pointed out, God would not share his dwelling place with other gods And the sanctuary had been polluted by idolatry. God's worship center at Shiloh was removed shortly after his glory had departed from it. And the same fate is now on the Jerusalem temple. Before God left both the temple and the city, there was a final pause. As if to delay the final moment of the departure of the glory of God. In the meantime... Before there's the final departure, there's the appearance of 25 wicked rulers, which we will see in the next chapter. All right, I think I've explained and expounded this passage that Israel departed from the Lord and the consequences were number one, judgment, and number two, the departure of the glory of God. But I want to close by pointing out, and this is very important, that how does this apply to the New Testament? Uh, Does God's glory depart from believers today? Does God's uh, presence depart from believers? And of course, the answer is no. But let me close by emphasizing that 
Believers today cannot lose God's presence, but they can lose God's blessing. So that's the difference. Thus the issue becomes, what do I do to get God's blessing and to keep it so that I won't lose it? Now, this chapter is on a, a very negative note, but let me co- conclude on a positive note. Let me conclude on what do you have to do to get God's blessing and keep God's blessing so that you don't lose it. And I would simply close by quoting James 1.25. James says, whoever looks uh, at the law, the perfect law of liberty, uh, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Notice, blessed in what he does. All right? This verse is talking about how to be blessed. What does it say? Well, look into the perfect law of liberty. Continue in it. Don't forget it. And be a doer of it. Simply put, understand what the scripture says. Be obedient to it. And you'll have God's blessing. But if you depart from the will of God, God's blessing will depart from you. Father, thank you for this reminder of how important it is for us to be obedient so that we can enjoy your blessing and the seriousness of departing from you and losing your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.